Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Reading from Luke 10, 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. All right, you may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, and again, happy Mother's Day. Uh, Last year on Mother's Day, I talked about politics. Because I don't know why I did that. Uh, I think I told the congregation it was between sex and politics, and I chose politics uh, on Mother's Day. Anyways, uh, but this year I thought we would, in honor of Mother's Day, we would talk about something a little bit more mother oriented, which is women. We're going to talk about women this morning, specifically about the role that women play in the life of the church, the role that women have in the body or in the church. Uh, But before I get into the teaching for the day, I just want to make one observation that some of you may or may not be aware of, and that is that I am, in fact, not a woman. Uh, Yes, it's true. I hope you're laughing because you're like, yes, that's true, and not, he kind of looks like a lady. (laughs) I hope hope so. And it's a funny thing, really, to be a man standing up in front of a group of people uh, talking about women, because I don't know what it is to be a woman. I don't know what what those unique challenges or uh, benefits actually are. Uh, And so it it creates a little bit of tension, right? Because, uh, but for me, like probably every other man in this room today, I've been deeply influenced by the women in my life, right? We all as I said earlier, have mothers, and we have all been influenced in some deep or personal way by women, right? And so it's important that we talk about this issue, and particularly the issue that we're talking about this morning is the role of women in leadership in the church. What role do women have in the leadership of the church? And when I say the church, I do mean the church broadly speaking, but I also mean very specifically in our community here at Grace. What role do women have to play in the body of Christ? Now, I care very deeply about this issue, not just because I'm married to a woman who also happens to be a pastor, but because I have lived enough to see the church uh, flourish when women are fully included, and I've seen situations where the role of women are kind of maligned or pushed to the side, and I've seen the way that that actually injures the body. I've seen that. And so today, uh, this is the second week of our series we're calling CORE, which is all about some of the foundational beliefs that we have as a church. And in this, we're going to look specifically at what the Bible has to say and why I believe it fully endorses women stepping into leadership at every level of the church. This might be a little bit of a, uh, a deep dive for some of us, but I think it's really, really important. Now, if you're new to the church or unfamiliar 
uh, with this particular issue. You might be asking yourself, Nick, what do you mean? Uh, of course women should be e have equal access to any and every role in the church. This is the 21st century, right? Women can be president. Why could we not have women be pastors, deacons, or teachers? But there has historically been a bit of a discussion about what the role of women can and should be in the church. Uh, now, if you aren't already aware of it, this church is uh, affiliated with a denomination or a fellowship called the Assemblies of God, called the Assemblies of God. And historically, our stream of the Christian faith, uh, in our particular stream, we are part of what is often called charismatic or the Pentecostal tradition. And in that tradition, the role of women has been pivotal. Uh, two women actually started the college that I graduated from in the basement of a church. And here, this is the New Testament scholar Craig Keener talking about the role of, that women have played in the tradition that our church comes out of. He says, the assemblies of God and other denominations birthed in the holiness or Pentecostal revivals affirmed women in ministry long before the role of women became a secular or liberal agenda. Likewise, in the historic missionary expansion of the 19th century, two-thirds of all missionaries were women. The 19th century uh, women's movement that, that fought for women's rights to vote originally grew from the same revival movement led by Charles Finney and others who advocated the abolition of slavery. By contrast, those who identify everything in the Bible's culture with the Bible's message were obliged both to accept slavery and to reject women's, uh, uh, women's, apostrophe S, ministry. But apart from our tradition, right, apart from our tradition, there has also been a consistent number of churches and denominations that believe that women cannot or should not occupy any leadership role in the church. They, they don't believe that women should occupy any role in the church that would provide them any level of authority over a man, actually, is what they believe. People, people who argue for this position do so based on the story of the Bible, right? They look at the whole kind of breadth of the Bible and a handful of passages in the New Testament that appear on the surface to preclude women from leadership in the life of the church. Now, I don't have room to lay out the whole argument against female leadership, but basically the argument is that God created man, uh, men to be leaders and created women to joyfully submit to that leadership, and it goes, and as it goes, men have been created with a kind of God-given ability or mantle of leadership in the church and in the home that women are called to complement uh, by uh, supporting and encouraging and willingly submitting to, to that leadership. And while it's true that God created men and women different in order that, it, that they might complement one another, that's a true statement, I hope to show you today from the Scriptures that God did not intend that complementarity to imply that women must be barred from leadership. Uh, and that men should hold all the power, right? This is not something I think the, the Bible argues for. Yes, men and women are different. They are. But both are needed in the church and in culture if our communities are going to be all that God wants them to be. Both are needed. In fact, I believe the church is robbed of the unique voice and perspective of women if they are excluded from, from leadership and just relegated uh, to other places and not allowed into every sphere of the life of the church. And I want to be a part of a church where women are fully included in the life and leadership of this church. And right now they are, right? We have a female associate pastor. We have a, a female deacon on our leadership team. We have a female worship leader. 
I happen to be the only man around on the leadership. No, that's not true. That's not true. But, but we are, and we want to continue to see this become a part of the culture of our church, that, that both sexes together, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are able to lead and to grow. Uh, and this issue, this issue of female leadership, is one that's incredibly important also in our culture, isn't it? Uh, last night, Ashley and I were in the kitchen, and she, she, I don't know if you had it on your phone or what, but she, she pulled it up and she said, uh, this, gave me this statistic, that of the Fortune 500 companies in the United States, there are more CEOs named John than there are female CEOs, right? Which is an interesting little bit of information. Uh, and because of this, because of the because of the ways in which this is an issue in culture and is when will continue to be a culture, the church needs to have biblical answers to these cultural questions and find, and find a very, I think, a unique space that both challenges the baseline assumptions of our culture while simultaneously holding out a beautiful vision of what a flourishing life and community under the rule and reign of Jesus looks like. This is what the church is called to. Women and men in our culture are asking this question, and it is important that we are clear on how we read the scriptures on these issues. It's, it's important that we be clear in this way. Now, if you're in this room, maybe you formed an opinion on this, and maybe you haven't. Maybe the opinion I'm about, or the biblical opinion that I'm about to exposit here is a little different than the one that you grew up with. Maybe it's a, a different than the one that you have. I just want you to uh, remain open-minded, right? Many, oftentimes, these things are a journey, but, but I do want to delve into the Scriptures in a pretty um, thorough way this morning to try and show you uh, why I think uh, this is the case, why I think the Bible doesn't just uh, describe but prescribes the role of women in leadership in the church. All right? All right. So today, I simply just want to lay out the biblical case. And so first, what I'm going to do is take the 30,000-foot flyover view of both the Old Testament and the New Testament and pull out some names and some stories of women who are in, who are in roles of leadership in the Bible. And then I'm going to do the real fun stuff, which is we're going to dig into two of the what are called problem texts. These are the texts that people who stand against female leadership in the church often use to argue uh, against it, all right? And we're going to look at those two specifically, and we're going to kind of talk about them and see what they mean, all right? All right, this is fun stuff, I promise. It's, su it's super fun stuff. All right, so uh, what we need to say before we hop into the story of these women in the Scriptures is that you have to remember when you're looking at this issue in the Bible, the Bible is located within a culture that is incredibly, overwhelmingly patriarchal, meaning that the ancient Middle East was a male-dominated society in a way that we could not be familiar with in our day here. And so, it should come as no surprise that the vast majority of the positions of power and and authority in the scriptures are male, right? The, those, the people who are holding those positions are male. But it is because of the patriarchal nature of this cult and the, of the, in the cultural setting of the Bible uh, that any deviation from that kind of male-dominated stance should be noted and seen as important. Does this make sense? Because if you had an overwhelmingly patriarchal culture where women were always being selected out of leadership, the fact that there were any women in leadership is a startling thing and something that we should note. Every time we see a woman in a position of authority, it is actually remarkable because she was very much swimming upstream in a male-dominated culture. 
So let's just look at the, at the Old Testament first, and we'll move briefly through this. Uh, we'll have their names and some of the scripture references up on the screen if you want to go and look, dig a little more deeply later on. And we'll, but we'll see what the Old Testament prescribes for the treatment um, uh, of women. All right. So the Old Testament does prescribe a kind of monumental leap forward for the way women were to be treated in society, because before uh, we don't really have any uh, record in in the ancient histories of the Middle East that would prescribe the type of high um, dignity and respect for women that the Bible prescribes. Right? It was it was in and of itself a giant leap forward in uh, ancient Middle East culture. but the role, the role of women in the scriptures was marginalized. That's for sure. We can't argue against that. But the first question we need to ask, there are many women in the scriptures and many names of women in the scriptures, but the question we need to ask when we're looking at them is, were, were these leadership positions? Were these positions of leadership? Did they have some, um, did they have some authority both over men and women? All right? And so our first example in the scriptures is Miriam. Miriam was the older sister of both Aaron and Moses. If you've seen the Moses cartoon, what's that called? Prince of Egypt? Miriam's in that one. Uh, she, but in the, in the story of the scripture, she plays a crucial role of leading Israel out of captivity in Egypt and through their wilderness wanderings. There is one story where she and Aaron kind of get on Moses' case about him marrying a woman that, uh, that they didn't want uh, him to marry, and that didn't go well for her, so she's not always right in the scriptures. But inevitably, she is uh, described as a leader in Israel. On one occasion, the whole group, the whole uh, gathered people of Israel, refused to, to move in the desert until Miriam comes with them. Uh, and she is described as a prophetess, prophetess in Exodus 15, verses 20. And the prophet Micah says this um, about uh, her. Uh, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam, right? In Micah 6. So that's Miriam. Alongside Miriam is one of the clearest Old Testament examples uh, of a leader, of a female leader in the Old Testament. And this is the, the judge, Deborah. She was a judge and a prophet. In the Old Testament, judges occupied the primary leadership roles in Israel. You can go to the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and you can read through, and you can kind of come to an understanding of this. And judges were empowered by God to both oversee the the spiritual, judicial, and practical administration of the society. This is the role that a judge had in uh, in in. Uh, ancient Israel's society. And Deborah was considered the, what, it, what was essentially the chief judge in Israel. And uniquely, Deborah also, uh, and this is the only occurrence we have of this in the Old Testament, she also led Israel's army to victory. She gathered some disparate clans that were, argue, were arguing and not getting along, and she went and kind of rallied them all together. And along with this general, Barak, uh, Obama, no, not, <laughs> just Barak. It's uh, a biblical name. The, uh, the gathered the gathered the army and went and won a war, right? So she was in some sense the commander in chief of Israel at this time. So uh, that is Deborah. The, another Old Testament figure is Huldah. She is described as a prophetess, and her counsel is sought by King Josiah. And if you know uh, the rule of kings in the Bible, Josiah was an important one, and Josiah's high priest at the time. So that's the Old Testament. 
all right? In the New Testament, we actually see the involvement and status of women ascending beyond where it was even in the, the, uh, in the New Testament. We see it ascending even where it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, women were barred from certain formal leadership positions, like the priesthood. You, you, you read in the Old Testament that women were not allowed to be priests. But in the New Testament, this door is flung wide open for women. And if we're going to begin anywhere uh, kind of locating how we should feel about women, female leadership in the Scriptures, we have to look at Jesus, don't we? Because Jesus gives us our pattern or rule for life as Christians. If we're going to determine anything for the church, we have to look at what Jesus thought about women in leadership. And what does Jesus say about this issue is, is a really important question. And when we look at the person of Jesus, what we find is that he transforms, actually, in some really significant way, uh, perceptions about this particular issue in the Scriptures. Jesus is radical in his acceptance and treatment of women in the New Testament. Radical. Unheard of. He, gets, he actually catches a lot of flack for it, right? Because of the way he treats women. Jesus himself breaks from cultural norms when he takes women as his disciples, as his disciples actually. Now, there is not a woman in the 12 disciples, but there were numerous women who were called disciples who traveled with Jesus. And we heard it in our teaching text for today, where Jesus allows Mary to sit right alongside with the other 12 disciples at his feet. Now, this idea of sitting at a, a rabbi's feet was a common posture for a disciple. It was a posture of learning, and it was a posture that in Jesus's day, culturally, women were not allowed to do at all. You would never, a woman would never have been allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. It just would not have happened. And yet, uh, and yet, we see Mary doing this. When Jesus invites Mary to sit at his feet and learn like any other disciple, he is radically reshaping a built-in cultural assumption that the women's place was in, the, it was in household service and child rearing. Household service and child rearing are rearing. It's a weird word, rearing are undoubtedly noble jobs, right? Jesus is not making light of these roles. Uh, but uh, he is not simply closing women's opportunities off at uh, household service and child rearing. He's kind of opening up the whole realm of vocation and possibility of what women could be called to, right? So you could be called to uh, household service and child rearing, and discipleship even. But Jesus refuses to limit the, po the important thing we need to notice is that Jesus refuses to li limit the possibilities that are open to women. Now, just a brief word on this Mother's Day about this passage that I think might be important. When we hear Jesus say, Martha, Martha, you are worried and concerned with many things, but only one thing is needed. Uh, we do not see Jesus making light of traditional tasks right? But he is encouraging Martha to adopt a kind of larger vision, right, of what life can and should be. Martha in this story represents the systems of power or the cultural systems that would have kept a woman in the kitchen and away from Jesus, but Jesus lovingly reorients her priorities in this passage, doesn't he? And maybe uh, this is a word for mothers in the room today, possibly, from the heart of Jesus, if you're a mom or a woman here today, you might be worried about many things, right, as often happens. 
There are a lot of spinning plates when you're a woman in our culture, right? We, you can read article after article about how in our modern society that women, women now are expected to have jobs and contribute to the family, but there's also this pull to the home. And so many women feel like their lives are in some sense pulled apart, and that creates a kind of dissonance in the heart of many women, right? And we become, not we, you, become worried about many things, right? I think, I think it's a, what Jesus' uh, words uh, to Martha here can be very uh, potent and powerful to the heart of women in our society because it's easy to get upset, isn't it? It's easy to worry. It's easy to get anxious. And maybe you are a woman in this place today and you need to hear the words of Jesus. Few things are actually needed. Indeed, only one. And when you're able to rest, to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, the, the worries of the world can in, have this own, their own unique way of kind of falling away. They really do. And if you're in this place today and you feel overwhelmed and loaded down, worried or anxious, Jesus invites you this morning to adopt a larger vision, a simpler vision maybe, of a life lived out of the abundance of his love, a life lived in the midst of his goodness and grace. It's possible. It really is. And Jesus extends and invites you into that, I think, this morning. So right here, I just wanted to stop and pray. So can I pray for the women in this place? Just pray that uh, if you need that larger vision this morning, that God would be there for you. So Father, we pray uh, for all the women in the house today. We know that we live in a culture that pulls women in uh, numerous positions and in numerous directions. And this morning, God, we ask that the, the words of Jesus to Martha would become words to uh, the heart of women in this place. That uh, don't be anxious, don't be worried. Few things are actually needed, indeed, only one. And that thing is to uh, pay attention to the goodness and the grace of God that is flowing through every aspect of our lives. And so, God, I pray for these women today, that they would, they would stop, they would calm themselves, they would not be anxious, and they would find their life in the person of Jesus. We pray it all in that name. Amen and amen. All right. Mothers, that's all I got for you. No. Uh, so, let's pick back up into the actual uh, boring stuff. Uh, so, Jesus seems to say via his interaction with Mary and Martha here, that there's no longer any hierarchy within the sexes, right? He says that the, the, the cultural assumption was that only men have the requisite faculties and spiritual right to be disciples, and Jesus does away with this idea here. Now, anyone who is willing to be called or invited by Jesus into this process of discipleship is invited into this process, right? No matter who you are or uh, what defines you, whether you're a male or a female, no matter what uh, socioeconomic status you come from, no matter what cultural background you come from, everybody is, uh, discipleship is open to everybody, right? doesn't matter if you have, uh, have a lot of power or you have no power. The, these are not the defining characteristics, because in the New Testament, the primary determining factor for one's fitness for any role whatsoever is not simply gender, but spirit empowerment. This is this is, the, this is the criteria, and we see numerous examples of this in the New Testament. And so in the New Testament, here are just a couple of quick examples, just briefly. Uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he mentions that the person that was responsible for carrying the letter, because Paul wrote a letter and they didn't have FedEx, so he gave it to somebody and then they took it to the church. The person who was carrying that letter in Rome was a woman, 
Now, this was an uncommon thing, and the person who, care, who was carrying the letter had to be important because they were carrying something very vital, right? And they had to be able to vouch for the significance of the letter that they were carrying. And so this was a woman. And at least five out of the nine women that Paul greets in uh, Romans are referred to as ministry colleagues or co-workers in the faith, right? Junia especially is referenced in Romans 16.4 as an apostle. We have a woman who is called an apostle, now, according to the New Testament scholar Ben Witherington, the criteria for apostleship at this time was that one must have been seen, uh, ha- had seen the risen Lord and received their, uh, their commissioning for ministry from Him, right? And this is Junia. Some have, made, some have argued, and you might have an old uh, version of the King James that actually renders this name Junia Junius which was patriarchy that was kind of baked into the interpretation of the way we interpret the Bible, because this, her name is most certainly uh, Junia. Junius is not a name that we have, that we know ever existed. There is not one, um, there's not one example of the name Junius in any ancient text that we have, any ancient Greek or Roman text. That name does not exist, but Junia is an incredibly common name. Some of the um, some of the Caesars had sisters who were named Junia, right? This is a, it's a very common name. It's most, Paul is most certainly speaking of a woman here, and he says that she is not just a good apostle, but she is notable or, or well-known among the apostles, right? It's a very, very important thing. So, uh, so we have Junia, and after Junia, we, we, uh, Paul greets two people, Priscilla and Aquila. This was a husband and wife team, but he names Priscilla the wife first, which is interesting because that one was not a common way of, of regarding a husband and wife uh, pair at this time. Uh, and this was a team of co-workers who mentored one of the, most, one of the primary or central teachers in, in the early church, a guy named Apollos. Uh, Paul references women deacons and overseers in verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3. In Colossians, sorry, I'm moving very fast because we need to. In Colossians 4, 5, Paul greets uh, Nympha as a leader of a church meeting in her house. Luke calls Philip's four daughters in Acts 21 prophetess, prophetesses. Um, and and, and uh, probably most convincing about this view that the that, that Uh, spiritual leadership is open to anybody and everybody comes out of Galatians uh, 3 uh, verses 26 through 29. And this is what Paul says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, uh, nor is there male or female, right? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Christ Jesus, there is now no longer any hierarchy or separation or limited access to some and open access to others. At the foot of the cross is level ground. And Christ calls and empowers all different types of people into his service and into his church. Okay? Okay, good. So if, there, uh, so, if there are this many examples of female leadership in the New Testament, why do some people still think that women don't belong in leadership in the church? Why is that, right? If, there, if there's that many examples, there seems to be a kind of disconnect here, right? 
Well, the reason that that is the case is because there's a few passages, a handful of passages. There's a couple others beyond the two that I'm going to talk about today, but these two are the primary ones that seem on the surface to preclude women from leadership. And that is 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15. And the, so we're just going to dive into these passages here. And if this gets technical, I'm sorry, right? No, it won't. It'll be fun. It's so fun. Ancient culture is so fun, isn't it? All right. Uh, the first thing about these passages that we need to understand is that Paul is attempting to correct problems that he sees in these churches, okay? Both of these passages, Paul is, spends a lot of time in these books addressing problems. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, there is actually a lot of problems that Paul is addressing. Paul spends nearly all of 1 Corinthians addressing problems. And a big chunk from, um, from, verse, from chapter 10, almost all the way through the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about orderly worship. He's, it was clear that in the Corinthian church, worship was a mess. People weren't as good as you guys. They were, they were horrible. And, uh, and so Paul is correcting all of this crazy stuff that people are doing in worship. And that's, within that context is the context that we need to see him talking about 1 Corinthians 14. So, in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 through 35, Paul is addressing a group of women who have been interrupting during the worship service and making it difficult for other people to engage. This is what he's addressing. And this is what he says in verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, if you take this passage just on the surface, if you just take those two verses and you remove them out of their context, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Right? It seems pretty clear. Women are not to speak, not even speak in the church or in the, in the public assembly. Uh, but if you read all of this letter, you will see that that is not true. Because in the very same letter, just three chapters back in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says the exact opposite thing. He says, women, when you pray and prophesy in church, do it properly. Now, there were some issues about what appropriate dress was. And if you, ha you remember, this is, a, this is a society that was very different from Jewish society, and they didn't have the same moral standards. And there, there were probably some women who were uh, dressed in ways that would have been considered provocative in their day, not in ours, because they didn't have their head covered. Uh, this was something that represented something in their day that was important. And so what Paul says is, and to them in chapter 11 is that when you pray and prophesy, make sure your head is covered because that's a decent way of doing that and then you won't distract other people around you, right? This is what Paul is saying. So he says this in chapter 11. He says, when you do this, do it this way. And then in chapter 14, he says, don't do this. So there's this, in, there's this inherent contradiction that we see in the scriptures, right? It's clear from this passage that Paul, his primary concern is orderliness. And women, particularly women of high status, and we'll see this coming in the next passage, uh, from, from high-status high societies would have often thought that interrupting or asking questions was an appropriate thing to do because if these women had spent any time in, um, in a learned environment in the ancient world, they, were, they took part in what is often called the Socratic method. You, are you familiar with the Socratic method is? It's, base, it's the basis for how we understand education in America, but it's a very Q&A type of setting. And so I could be up here saying something and somebody could raise their hand and say, well, Nick, what about da-da-da-da? And then we would go back and forth for a while. The reason we don't do that here on Sunday mornings is because it takes too long and you got to go. <laughs> so uh, that's, 
Uh, that's kind of what is happening. And Paul is simply saying to these women who have, have newly come into the church, this isn't the Socratic method. You can't just raise your hand and talk and dominate conversation. You have to, you have to pay attention and learn for a little while, all right? And after you do that, then uh, just don't interrupt, right? His primary concern is orderly worship in 1 Corinthians. All right. And I'll have more, I have a ton of resources for anybody who's interested in this. You can come up and ask me after church. I can give you oodles and oodles of books and resources and things to read. So the second passage is 1 Timothy, right? And in 1 Timothy, this is what we read. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to uh, assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women uh, will be saved through childbearing, which is a very strange thing, right? If they continue in faith, love, holiness with, uh, with uh, propriety. Again, a pretty strange passage, isn't it? It feels kind of strange. Like, because we know that the Bible doesn't teach that women are saved through childbearing, Right? I don't know about you, I've spent a fair amount of time in church, I've never actually heard that, right? I've never heard that that's the way it goes. So Paul is clearly addressing something here that we, on the surface, are not very familiar with, right? Can we at least agree on that? That he's talking about some things here that are deeply culturally ingrained in the, in the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was a pastor, and he's addressing some issues there. And so this one is really interesting, and I could talk about it for way longer than I have. But uh, just one thing we have to know is that uh, Ephesus was the religious and banking center, and I've said this before, but uh, is the, was the religious and banking center of the ancient world. They had all the money, and they had all the, all the religion, and so it was a very powerful place. And the, the reason they had all the money and all the religion was because uh, what was considered the second wonder of the world, the, the second great wonder of the ancient world was in Ephesus at this time, and that was the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was this great and grand temple that was built to Artemis. And in uh, Ephesus, this very effluent, very religious community, Paul planted probably his most vibrant church in all of the Greco-Roman world. The biggest revival of Paul's life took place in Ephesus. The Ephesian church was this booming place, right? And it was booming in the midst of this metropolis that lived uh, full of people that lived very different lives from the type of lives that Paul was calling to people to in Christ. And so, one thing that you have to be aware of when you read this is that uh, the Artemis cult, the, the Temple of Artemis, had some very unique things. The first was that uh, women were priestesses in the, in the cult of Artemis. They could be vestal virgin, virgins, and they, they could, uh, specifically high society women or women with a lot of money, could kind of buy their way in, right? And have a lot of authority or power in the, in the temple of Artemis. And the second thing you need to remember, and this casts some light on the kind of strange thing that Paul says here, is that Artemis was the patron saint of childbirth. And so if you wanted to have uh, in childbirth in the ancient world as it is in many places today, is a very dangerous proposition. And so if you wanted to have a little bit more favor in the process of childbirth, you know what you did? You went to the temple of Artemis, and you gave some money, and you said, Artemis has got me. Everything's going to be fine, right? This is what you did if you were a woman at this time. And so, what is clearly happening here is that some high-status or high-society women uh, who had these roles in the temple of Artemis are coming into the church, and what they want to do 
is, have that exact same position in the Ephesian church. They want, they want to kind of duplicate their important role in the, in, the, in the cult of Artemis in the church right away. And what Paul is saying is, no, be quiet. Actually, he says, I do not, you'll read in the, uh, you'll read in verse 12, I do not permit. But actually, that, that verb there, I do not permit, it's just one word in the Greek, is actually mistranslated it's, um, in, in the, the verse we used for today. The, a better rendering is, I do not now permit. I do not now permit. And this verb here never means in any uh, extent Greek, and that just means in existence. Any in existence Greek text that we have, that verb never means I never permit or I will never allow. It means I do not now permit, right? I do not now permit these women who have come out of the temple of Artemis to usurp authority over the given teachers who are in the place, who are in the church right now. What they need to do is take a beat, sit quietly, and learn for a period of time to be trained, and then we'll see. This is what Paul is saying to these women in the, the Ephesian church. And that little thing about childbearing there, what Paul is saying is that you believed that uh, Artemis would, would provide safety for you uh, or, and through this process of childbearing, but be, now because of your faith in Jesus, you no longer need to look to Artemis for your protection or for your sufficiency in this. We now look to Jesus, right? This is what Paul is saying in a kind of way that doesn't make sense to us because we are not living in Ephesus. Ephesus happens to be a really long ways from Cedar Falls. You couldn't even ride your bike there if you wanted. So, this is what uh, Paul is saying, and this is what these two passages of Scripture are dealing with. Like I said, they can, they can get slightly technical, and you, if you dig into them, they can get even more technical. But Paul seems to be building a case here, doesn't he? Uh, now, this, the person who wrote both of these passages that we looked at today was Paul, right? It's the same, the same guy. Uh, but he seems to be building a kind of case here for the criteria for what, uh, what a leader or what a minister in the New Testament should be like, what, what they should do. And he actually says and it, it, that leadership in the church is open to everyone, but there are still criteria, right? There are still things we need to follow. And the New Testament lays out kind of three criteria for what, uh, what leadership in the church should be, how, who can or cannot lead. And these are the three criteria. The qualifications for leadership in the church are anyone who is called, anyone who is gifted with the Holy Spirit, and anyone who has give, been given the opportunity and the training. The opportunity and the training. This is what he's saying to these women in the Ephesian church, right? Sit and learn for a little bit, all right? You're too new to this. These are the criteria for leadership. Are you called? Are you gifted? And are you trained? So, uh, to a woman in the Ephesian church who had not received any training, Paul says, let's wait and get some training. Now, and, and this applies now not just to women, but to all of us, I think, in this place today. Do you feel called to leadership in the church? Do you feel called to leadership in the church? And I would lay out these criteria for you if you're in this place. Do you feel called? And if so, if you feel called, what are your gifts? Right? Have some conversations with people. Have, uh, invest your life in the church and determine what are my gifts? What are my strengths? Where can I, where can I uh, leverage this calling that I feel that God has in my life? And finally, are you trained? Have you trained your mind and your heart to be in leadership? 
There are plenty of people who have talent but aren't trained, right? There are plenty of people who feel called but aren't gifted and aren't trained. There are plenty of people who aren't called but think they're trained, right? There's all, there's all kinds of issues here. And in the, in the scriptures, there's a strata or there's, there's a criteria for who's, who's uh, capable of leading in the church. This, this is what Paul says. And uh, this is what I want to say to us today as a community of faith. Uh, God is going to continue to raise up leaders out of our body, right? God is going to do this. He's going to continue to do this. And, and as our community grows, we need more leaders, we do. We need more people. We need more of you to step up, whether you're male or whether you're female, whatever cultural background you come from, however qualified or unqualified you feel like you are. We need you, right? But there is criteria. There is a criteria, right? We, we don't just come into the church and automatically assume leadership. We don't, we don't just... Um, we don't just step up to the plate and think that it all is fine and good. We, we acknowledge the fact that there is a kind of criteria, and that criteria involves us being a part of the community. It, it involves us discerning our gifts and talents. It involves us being released into, into leadership by the community, right? And it involves training of our, both our heart and our mind. This is what leadership is. And to be honest with you, one of the things that this community, this church will need more than anything moving forward is more leaders, more leaders, more people who will lead within their giftings for the kingdom, more people who will, uh, will uh, use or leverage their gifts for the work of the kingdom, to love people, to love children, to, to, uh, to plan events, to to lead in spiritual ways, to, to sing and to teach and to pray and to do all of these things. Our church will need more leaders if we're going to be all that God would have us to be. And some of them might be here today. Some, some of you are that. But keep in mind that, that in the kingdom, in a fully orbed, a, full, a fully rounded picture of what a flourishing church is, is one in which everyone, leadership is open and available. Service is open and available to everyone, no matter, no matter if you're male or female, no matter, no matter what your uh, mental or physical disadvantage. It's open to everybody. It's available to everyone, and everyone has their place. But, but, there's still a criteria. There's still a responsibility, and there's still this overwhelming sense of responsibility to not to not not to any sense of uh, wanting to be seen as important, but to to the God who gifts and empowers us to be all that He's created us to be. And many of you might be in this room today, and you have gifts, and you have talents, and you have ability that could be leveraged not just for this community, but maybe. Uh, maybe for people out in, out in your sphere of influence, and you haven't leveraged those gifts. You haven't actually put them to use. You haven't stepped up in whatever sphere you find yourself as a leader because of some level of insecurity, or, uh, or you feel as though uh, that's, that's for other people, it's not for me. And I think the voice of God is calling all of us today to realize that we are all called in some way, shape, or form, to leverage our gifts, the, gifting, the giftedness that we've been given by God, in some form in our, in our, in our city, in our, in our workplace, or in our church for the good of the kingdom. We're all called to that. We're all called to that. 
But after our calling, we have to identify our gifts. And after we identify our gifts, we must be trained in those gifts. And until we do all of those things, we will never be as effective as, we were, as God actually calls us to be. You know, I grew up at Bible college. I didn't grow up at Bible college. That's weird. I went to a Bible college with a bunch of men and women who thought that just because I felt a call on my life, I was automatically qualified to do this. And you know what we found very quickly? Those people ruin people's lives. They really do. They wreck them. They wreck them. And I don't want, I, and one thing that I was always scared of growing up and when I was in, in college was I just didn't want to wreck anybody's life. And so I actually took a lot longer to get to this than a lot of people probably thought I should have because of that. But the reality is, is that you are all called to something. Women, men, regardless. You're called to something. And if you're a woman in this place and you feel called to leadership, you, call, you feel called to teach, and that's a gifting on your life, we want to encourage it. If you're a man in this place and your gift is service, we want to encourage it. If you're a man in this place and your gift is teaching, we want to encourage it. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we want to encourage. We want to be a community of faith, hope, and love that lives within the rhythms of God's kingdom and embraces our giftedness, where we can all flourish in the ways in which God has created us to be, and we can walk out our callings, regardless of whether that's vocational, vocational church ministry or not, where we can walk out our callings in, in, the, in, the, in the hand of God. This is what we call, this is what we want, and this is the type of community we want to be. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be done, because it's past time, and it's Mother's Day. Father, we love you. And we pray that you would be uh, with us today. Father, I pray for those of us, all of us in the, in the house today, who have a call on their lives, because we all do. Father, would you help us to lean into that call today? Would you help us to identify our giftings within that call? And would you enable us to step up to that call? Uh, would you provide opportunities for mentoring and training in and around this community and outside of it, God? Would you uh, help us to be the people of God, and would you raise up leaders within our midst that can help us uh, move forward into the future? We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for putting up with a very technical sermon today. I appreciate it. Uh, if you're new with us and uh, you filled out a card, we'd love to give you a, a coffee mug. Uh, if you're not into coffee, it works well for water too, as you can see up here. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.